So our text this morning is a tiny, oh, please be seated. I'm sorry. <laughs> you would have figured it out. So our text this morning um, is a little phrase, just 14 words long. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you had asked me even a few weeks ago what I meant when I prayed this prayer, what I even mean by the idea of the Father's kingdom, my honest answer would have to be that most of the time, my vision for the kingdom when I pray this short prayer, and I go through it really fast most of the time, is a sort of vague, rosy-colored mashup of the things that I would like to see in the world around me with the things that I think God also wants in his kingdom. When I pray for the kingdom of God to come in Chicago, I am praying in hopes of living in a city without so much violence and loss. I pray for a more peaceful and just city, a city free of corruption and free of self-interested political deals, a city without police brutality, a city where the poor are treated with dignity, a racially integrated city, a city without fear, a city capable of balancing a budget, a functional city. <laughs> this is a kingdom that I figure both God and I can get behind. I feel good about praying for these good things. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with this as a starting place for prayer. And there's no shame in thinking about good stuff and praying that God will bring that about. The problem is that over time, I can confuse my good wishes, this fanciful cloud comprised of my good ideas and my noble intentions and my happy hopes. I confuse these ideas and these ideals, these thoughts, with the weighty reality of the kingdom of God. I come to imagine that they are the same thing when, in fact, they are not the same thing, and they never can be. No matter how much I love Jesus, no matter how mature I grow in my faith, no matter how much my desires align with the desires of God, the kingdom that I imagine and the real kingdom of God are not the same. Now, this is partly because his thoughts are above my thoughts, as far as the heavens are above the earth, and that even my most noble desires are shot through with flaws and self-interest. But the main difference between the kingdom of God and every other kingdom is that the kingdom of God is real and true, and every other kingdom is illusory and false. This is not an easy truth for us to grasp, because the kingdom of God is in large part invisible to our eyes. In 1 Timothy, the king of this kingdom is described as immortal and invisible, we know from Colossians that part of all of creation is visible, but part of it is invisible. Throughout Scripture, we learn that the things of God are often secret. They're hidden. Over and over, in both the Old and New Testament, we are told of the urgent need for God to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Those without eyes to see... And those who see through a glass darkly, and every human being on earth falls into one of those two categories, we all tend to believe that just because the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom, it must be kind of an imaginary kingdom. We confuse invisible with imaginary, as in what we imagine. Now, I spent this past week on vacation, sleeping in an unfamiliar bedroom with an attached bathroom. 
And between my bed and the bathroom door was a medium-sized wicker chair with a footstool. In the dark, they were invisible to me. And this was out in the country, so no street lights coming through to help me out. I knew that they were there, and as I made my way cautiously around, I would imagine their location, and I would feel around with my hands and feet in the direction that I imagined that they were so I wouldn't bump into them. No matter how hard I worked at that, the chair and the footstool that existed in my imagination were literally never ever exactly aligned with the chair and the footstool that existed in reality. And the chair and the footstool that existed in reality always won out over the chair and the footstool of my imagination, if you know what I mean. The invisible but real chair and footstool were unexpected, and they were capable of causing me suffering. Brothers and sisters, God has built a kingdom of which Jesus is the cornerstone. In Isaiah, Jesus is called the chosen and precious cornerstone. And later, the apostle Peter clarifies that to those who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, he is a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation piece of that invisible but real kingdom. In every other kingdom that we construct, the ki that cornerstone is not truly foundational, and thus we're constantly bruising ourselves against him. This is true of kingdoms, of every individual fiefdom where Christ has been explicitly rejected of the cornerstone, they're still encountering that cornerstone. But it's also true, although to a lesser degree, for those of us who have accepted Christ as the foundation of our lives. There's always some degree of disconnect um, between the location and the, the primacy of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of the real kingdom. In this world, until the kingdom comes in its complete fullness at the end of time, we will continue to bump into that cornerstone. It is a real kingdom, only part of which is visible. But as we begin, both as individuals and a church, to pray in faith for God to manifest his kingdom, we need to know that like that invisible chair and footstool, the coming of God's kingdom on earth will be unexpected, and it will be riddled with suffering. I'll say that again. The coming of God's kingdom in our time on earth is unexpected, and it is riddled with suffering. I know that sounds pretty grim. When I began preparing this message, I had really planned and intended to focus on a much more beautiful and inspiring picture of the kingdom of God. I wanted to speak at length about the ways that the reality of the Father's kingdom increases our capacity for wonder and joy and the apprehension of beauty and deep dependence on the Lord beyond anything that we can imagine. Because that is true, and that is real also. But as I was praying for us, for us as a congregation, um, as I searched scriptures, as I reflected on the times in my life when the kingdom of God was made manifest, when it's been most immediate and real in my life, these realities were the ones that came to mind. The Lord's Prayer invites us to pray prayers of faith regarding the kingdom of God. As we pray prayers of faith and bear witness to the kingdom by living lives that embody the will of God, 
the kingdom of God becomes manifest. To make manifest is to make visible, to make tangible something that is already present. We, you and I, cannot make the kingdom come, but we can pray prayers and live lives in such a way that the kingdom becomes visible. Where the kingdom of God breaks through, intense joy breaks out. The sick and the lame are healed. The poor are fed. Lives are transformed. And at the same time, we'll discover that the real kingdom of God is playing out differently than expected, and that suffering is also involved. Consider the experience of John the Baptist. If any human man was prepared to welcome the coming of the kingdom of God, it had to be John the Baptist. Before John was even born, an angel told his parents that John's whole vocation, the calling of his life, would be to prepare the way of the Lord. When John's mother and Jesus' mother met while both little boys were still in the womb, John leapt for joy in recognition of the Messiah. Later on, God confirmed Jesus as the Messiah by sending the Holy Spirit upon him in the visible form of a dove. John literally roamed the country, calling, Repent! The kingdom of God is at hand! Who could have been more invested in God's kingdom? Who could have been more prepared and more eager for it? Imagine his hope and his joyful anticipation of all that Jesus would do in bringing the kingdom of God to earth. But just a few months later, John sends this message to Jesus via the disciples. Ask him, he told the disciples, ask him if he is the one who is to come or if we should look for another. John, the desert prophet with his camel hair clothing and his diet of insects, was not a man liable to fold at the least sign of difficulty. He had already brought his own ministry to an end so that there would be room for the ministry of Christ to expand. But John had dared to challenge the sexual practices of a powerfully political couple. Now he was imprisoned, and soon he would be beheaded for it. If Jesus is truly the Messiah, you can imagine him reasoning, if he is really ushering in the kingdom of God on earth, shouldn't things be getting better? Things are getting worse. My call to repentance is not being heeded. Is it possible that Jesus is not the one? The manifestation of the kingdom will not unfold according to human expectations. For some people, like John the Baptist and like many of our Christian brothers and sisters in places like Syria, North Korea, and Pakistan, citizenship, participation in the Father's kingdom will lead to death. For you and me, our suffering is really small by comparison. Nevertheless, the coming of the kingdom of God on earth will result in the death and burial of many of our private dreams, hopes, desires, and ideals. It will involve profound disillusionment and even disappointment. This is because we are living in the middle of the story of history. 
Jesus has already placed one foot over the threshold of time, into time and space, and the reign of God on earth has begun. Now we wait and we pray and we long for that second footfall at the end of time when the kingdom will come in its fullness. That final end, that final beginning really, will be glorious. It will be unexpected, I'm sure, but it will not include suffering. Hear the vision of John the Revelator about what that day will look like. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away, and the one seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. That is the end of the gospel story as far as our lives on earth are concerned. The end of the story is a new beginning when a holy people live in everlasting shalom with a holy and loving God in his kingdom. Right now, we are in the middle of the story, and at the middle of the story of the gospel is suffering. Pastor and preacher Louis Giglio reflects on the gospel story this way. He says, the gospel is rooted in a place of discomfort, Christ's discomfort. The cross brought pain to Jesus in the same breath it brought freedom to us. We are alive because of Christ's discomfort. This is our story. People ask, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to put our faith in the work of Jesus. What is the work of Jesus? That he came to earth? He lived, he was crucified, he was resurrected, he ascended into heaven, he sent the spirit of God and now he's living inside of us. This is the gospel, this is what we believe and it all hinges around a very uncomfortable moment. Faith thrives in holy discomfort. If we confuse the end with the middle and assume that the advance of the kingdom of God means an absence of suffering or the fulfillment of our ideals and hopes, we will not be able to recognize the kingdom when it comes. The disciples made this mistake as well. They believed that when the Messiah came the first time, that that was the end of the story. They thought that he would make manifest their deep hopes for liberation, that the people of God, the Jews, would be liberated from their oppression and justice would be done. They, like John the Baptist, were finding life with the Messiah to be not what they expected. Jesus responded to their confusion with a teaching called the parable of the weeds. The kingdom of heaven, he said, may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. When the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and asked, do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, the reapers will sort them out. This was still confusing. And they asked for a clarification. Jesus added, the harvest is at the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. 
Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This sounds like a harsh teaching to our ears, doesn't it? It is definitely not comfortable to hear Jesus talking about how he will send his angels to throw lawbreakers into a fiery furnace. But then we are a strange people. Everybody wants justice. Nobody wants to be judged. This may be a natural wish, but it is a profoundly unreasonable one. Justice requires judgment. When the ways of injustice are breaking over our heads, we cry out for justice. And justice is a primary feature of the kingdom of God. We crave justice, but we are unable to enact it. As fallen human beings, we're often unable to discern what justice is. As theologian Michael Gorman puts it, justice is not an autonomous ethical principle. It is a comprehensive, covenantal, relational mandate. And it is therefore completely beyond the grasp of any kingdom that does not have Christ as its cornerstone. Consider these examples of injustice in Chicago and ask yourself what it might look like to mete out justice in the correct measure and proportion to responsible parties. What about justice in the death of Laquan McDonald three years ago? What about the case where an infant was thrown from a high-rise window right behind Uplift High School two years ago, dropped by her 16-year-old mother, who was making a final desperate attempt to hide the existence of the child from her strict Muslim parents? And this morning, I woke up and read the headline that this weekend, 10 people were killed and 37 wounded in shootings in Chicago. How will justice be done? It is just barely conceivable with the shootings. We can imagine a police force finding each shooter and bringing them to some sort of justice. This is just barely conceivable. It's not likely, it's conceivable. Is that full justice? What is justice for the people who were brought to the point of picking up a gun and shooting it? What went into the lives of those people? What about the victims? What is justice for someone who's lost a family member or has been wounded? What else is going on in their lives? There may be heaps of other circumstances such that this is the final straw in circumstances that seem so unjust and so out of proportion. Life in an unjust world is intolerable. The weight of injustice squeezes us all around, and we are incapable of enacting justice. We should and can cry out against injustice and ask the Lord to intervene. But we need to know that when we call for justice, we are calling down judgment 
we are inviting the judgment of the Lord on all who break the law of God. And that's where things get really difficult for everyone because the holiness of God testifies against each and every one of us. The words of the psalmist testify, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who can stand? And the words of the prophet Malachi testify, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the justice of the Lord? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. A perfectly just world is coming, a world without causes of sin and without lawbreakers. But when every single one of us is a lawbreaker, justice is a terrifying thought. Our only hope and the only hope of every lawbreaker in the city is to lay hold of the only man in history who fulfilled the law to perfection, the one whose suffering at the center of history has made a way out from under the law. I just noticed when we were reading the New Testament passage, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. We come near to Jesus through the door of repentance and ask him to carry us into the just and holy kingdom of God. There is no other way to get there. This reality has to affect how we pray for the Father's kingdom to come. If the justice and mercy and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be manifest on earth, pray prayers of faith for those who are currently living in condemned kingdoms under the law. Pray for those trapped in unbelief. Jesus began his own ministry by preaching, and the text of his sermon was, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What if calling people to repentance was not so much a matter of our casting judgment on the world, but a matter of showing people the doorway that leads into the kingdom of God? It is not the duty of the church to judge the world. It is the duty of the church to judge the church, but our first duty to the world is to let the world know that the holy kingdom of the Father is coming, and to demonstrate with our lives how to survive in a holy kingdom. How do we do this? If even believers in Christ Jesus see through a glass darkly, and we bark our shins on the cornerstone of that kingdom, if we know that life in the kingdom involves surprises and suffering, if we understand that a primary function of our lives is to witness to the urgent need for repentance. What do we do with all of that? 
How can we possibly participate in the kingdom of God? It seems like a lot to handle. But there is really good news. We don't handle it ourselves. The prayers of faith and the doing of the will of God are both just very simple facets of bearing witness to all God has done on our behalf and all that he is doing to bring his justice in the world. I love how Will Easton last week broke down the first part of the Lord's Prayer. He told us that the first part of the prayer, hallowed be thy name, is a prayer of command. We cry, Father, show yourself, manifest yourself as holy. And today's text is cut from that same cloth. It's not a prayer that asks, help us figure out how to bring your kingdom about and help us to do that. The coming of the kingdom is a work of God. We are allowed to participate in that. He is pleased to, do, to use us in bringing about justice and peace. But the kingdom is manifested because God makes it so. This is a glorious comfort. This means that the Father's kingdom does not rest on our feeble, lame, imperfect efforts at all. Christ has done all that is necessary. This is why he says to us, come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All that is necessary, Christ has done for us. So you and I cannot usher in the kingdom of God personally at all. What we do is to pray prayers of faith that demonstrate the reality of the kingdom. We live lives that bear witness to what he has done and is doing. When prayers of faith are prayed, when our whole lives are evidence of this unseen, holy, and just kingdom, this is when and where we will begin to see the kingdom of God. It is not that our prayers of faith and our embodied gospel lives make the kingdom come. God is ruling and reigning regardless. But by praying prayers of faith and investing our whole lives into those prayers, we participate in his just and holy reign. When I'm referring to, what I'm referring to as a prayer of faith is a prayer that has deep confidence in the Father's ability to bring his kingdom. But it is not a passive, detached prayer. The prayer, thy kingdom come, is followed immediately with the prayer, thy will be done. These are two halves of a seamless whole. You see, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That is an extraordinary truth that points to what it means to be the church. The kingdom is made manifest when the church bears witness to the world by being the church. When the church prayers, pray, prays prayers of faith that involve our whole lives, the kingdom of God is made manifest. The church is so much less about doing than we think it is, and so much more about being. That doesn't mean that we never move into action. We do. God will speak to us when to speak, when to do. But at its heart, 
the kingdom of God from our perspective is one of receiving and recognizing and rejoicing and embodying the kingdom. Here are words of three Christian thinkers that are trying to get at this truth, I believe, about what it means to pray prayers of faith and live gospel lives as the church. A guy named Klein Snodgrass puts it this way. The church does not bring in the kingdom. It witnesses to, is a servant of, and demonstrates the presence of the kingdom. Christians have the task of showing the reality of the new age right in the midst of the old. Leslie Newbigin wrote, the primary reality of Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic or means of interpretation of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Stanley Hauerwas threw out this little gem. When the church sends a missionary, she never sends just one. She sends at least two so that people can see the gospel. The prayer of faith is inseparable from the life of faith a life lived in confidence of the reality of the kingdom of God and his ability to bring it about. The church doesn't strive and battle for justice. The church bears witness to the justice of God by living justly and by not complaining when we suffer for it. The church doesn't judge the world. The church judges herself and calls others to do the same. As some of you know, I've had in recent years, the immense privilege of watching God pull a very big rabbit out of a very tiny hat. That is, I saw God making his kingdom manifest in an amazing way when he brought Emmanuel Anglican Church into being. That magic analogy may sound a little flippant, but really, one of the most powerful verses in Scripture to me is found in Romans 17. It has a subtitle called, The Promise realized through faith. There's a phrase there that describes God as the one who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Another way of phrasing it, God calls into being those things that are not. That's what God does, brothers and sisters. He creates a something where there was nothing, and you feel like a five-year-old at a magic show. Uh, I wish that I had time this morning to tell you the story of how I got a front row seat to watching God work something incredible in response to the prayers of his people, but I don't have time. I actually wrote it out. It was like a thousand words long. (laughs) It increased the length of the sermon by 25%, so I cut it out. (laughs) What I'm going to do, though, is put out a challenge because I know that I'm not the only one here who has borne witness to extraordinary answers to prayer, prayers where God moved, God moved. This summer at Emmanuel is a summer of prayer, and before the summer ends, I want to challenge you either to tell your own story of where the kingdom of God has been made visible in your own life, or ask to hear someone else's story. To hear the story I'm talking about at Emmanuel, you could take me out to lunch and invite me to tell you. Just kidding. I will pay my own way. I love talking about it. 
You could also ask any of my family members. Uh, you could ask Josh or Lindsay Evans or Nicole Aaron Sanga or Father Aaron and his wife Laura. We all have our own perspective, our own take on this story. Um, but as I look out in the congregation here, I know there are so many others who have their own story of how they saw the kingdom of God being made visible before them. Ask each other, tell each other. Praying the prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It means investing your whole self by faith in the invisible kingdom of God that is pressing out into the physical world that we can see and touch and hear. And it is a glorious mixture of hope and healing and good surprises and unwelcome surprises and longings met and longings delayed. And it is real and it is a kingdom not of our own making. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, I invite you to pray. Pray without worrying if your faith is adequate. Live gospel lives without worrying if your works are efficacious. I cannot emphasize this enough. It is not the quality of our prayers that matter. It is not the effectiveness of our witness that matters. It is the quality and character and the effectiveness of the God who gives the faith and who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you're not sure where to begin, start by asking for a little mustard seed of faith. Ask for the vision and the faith to pray for the Father's kingdom to come in a specific area of your life or the life of the city. Start with something that matters to you. Pray into that. Live into that. You may already have a burden for a corner of the kingdom that God has already called you to pray for and to bear witness to. If so, seek out others to join you in those prayers and actually invite them to do that with you this summer. If you don't know what to pray for, I have a suggestion. <laughs> Jesus said that the fields are white with harvest and that workers are needed to do the work of gathering them into the kingdom. Our city is full of people who are laboring in slavery, condemned under the law, Jesus said, but there are whole fields of people who are ready to come out from under the law and into new life in Jesus. If you don't see what the Father sees, and I have a hard time seeing this sometimes, pray that your eyes would be open. Pray that you yourself would hear and see and respond with your heart to reality, to the unseen reality that is true and real. Pray that you yourself would grow in the joy that is the hallmark of the kingdom. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus Christ. Give us eyes and ears to see and hear you and hearts that understand the profound love of the Father for everyone and everything he has created. Fill us so profoundly with the joy of the Lord that we can cheerfully sell all we have in order to be with you in your kingdom. 
And we pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.